Turn your Bibles, we continue our sermon series in Paul's epistle that we call 1 Corinthians, a sermon entitled, Staying in the Fishbowl, 1 Corinthians 6. The chaplain of the University of Nebraska took a survey of incoming freshmen to the university and asked the question, how much influence did your church play on your views of sexuality? How much influence did your church play on your views of sexuality? And the freshmen that year at the University of Nebraska said only 2% said that their church had anything to do with their views of sexuality. Only 2%. I'm not sure why the church doesn't have greater influence in this area. But I am sure that the New Testament speaks to it. I'm sure that Jesus spoke to it. You're going to see today that Paul spoke to it. Moses spoke to it in the Old Testament. And the church has an absolute responsibility to take on the topic. The church cannot remain silent on this important topic. We cannot sit with our hands folded and allow others to influence our children, our students in this matter. The best thing we can do in regard to our children and our students is to start talking to them about the topic from day number one and continually present them with a biblical sexual ethic and expect them to live within that ethic for the entirety of their lives. I can promise you this. Every other power that exists is trying to influence your children in regard to this topic. In fact, one writer, Terry Mattingly, wrote, Some clergy continue to duck sexual issues because they're afraid to offend grown-up sinners. The truth is, writes Mattingly, churches that can't talk about sin and repentance can't talk about healing and forgiveness either. Churches that won't talk about sin and repentance can't talk about healing and forgiveness either. It is my responsibility to have the courage in the appropriate ways and using the appropriate language to address the hard issue. We can't skip over the chapters we don't like in 1 Corinthians if we're going to really study the book. First of all, I'll tell you some things this morning that we ought to believe in regard to human sexuality, and then some things that we ought to do in regard to human sexuality. First of all, in regard to our beliefs, sex is good. God created it. God called it good. It existed before there was ever any sin in the world. It wasn't created by the Internet. It was created by God. Sex was created by a holy God of heaven where purity reigns. And God created within us a desire to have intimacy, and if we did not, their people would not even exist. It is part of plan, God's overall plan for procreation. In fact, the Bible speaks openly about the intimacy between a husband and a wife. Proverbs chapter 5 talks about a man being satisfied in his relationship with his wife. It says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be exhilarated always with her love. And don't be exhilarated with an adulteress. In fact, the text is actually quite more specific than I have read this morning. If you want to go look up Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. 
Sex is sort of like fire, isn't it? Fire is a good thing sometimes. It can keep us warm. We can cook our food with it and it'll kill the bacteria to keep us from getting a disease or getting sick. But if not placed within the proper boundaries, fire can absolutely be the most destructive force on the planet. A raging forest fire can destroy and devour everything in its path. Controlled fire is wonderfully good. Warmth, well-done food, but out of the boundaries, it is the destructive force of hell. First of all, sex is good. Secondly, boundaries of a sexual relationship are found in the covenant of marriage. Boundaries in a, a sexual relationship are found in the covenant of marriage. Suppose these fish did decide that, well, Pastor, how is just fooling them? They see me out here. I'm in the big ocean. They're in the little bowl. I must be holding back. I must be trying to keep all the fun and the joy to myself. And what the fish were thinking, you know what? When it gets quiet in here, we're going to jump out. We're going to enter the big world. We're going to go to the big ocean. We're going to have a great time because we believe that Pastor Howie has lied to us by placing us in the boundaries of the fishbowl. You know what would happen. Same thing that happened to Adam and Eve. God drew boundaries and said, around this tree you shall not eat. Every other tree you can have, but this one you shall not eat. And if you do, you will surely die. The whole Bible begins with a story about boundaries. Boundaries have always been important to God. Our human sexuality is that way. We're like the fish in the bowl, and God has set us in the bowl. The boundary in regard to our human sexuality is a covenant relationship of marriage between a husband and a wife. And God knows if we get outside the fishbowl, it will cause a tremendous amount of pain. He knows how costly it is to ignore his law, just as costly as it would be for these fish to ignore the laws of nature which say their gills cannot consume or process air. God knows the pain. One of the largest lies peripherated by a fallen culture today is that there are no cost or consequences to sexual sin. It simply isn't true. Here's a third thing. Getting outside the fishbowl is extremely costly and painful. When you, you hop out at God's boundaries, when you leave the fishbowl, it is extremely costly and painful. There's no way for me to enumerate this morning the cost and pain associated with inappropriate, intimate activity. The greatest cost, I would say, and might surprise you, is emotional and psychological. It's a trauma to yourself, a trauma to your spouse, or a trauma to your future spouse even. You see, sexual education programs today in our nation, they're often based upon a false assumption. They can convince a student to use protection, then the student will be safe from the harms of human sexuality, no sexually transmitted diseases, no unwanted pregnancies. If there's no STD, there's no pregnancy, then no harm, no foul, no damage done. But to think like that is for the scientists to reduce us down to the animals of the forest, and we're not. We are created in the image of God. 
While certainly a sexual transmitted disease is a cause for living outside of God's boundaries, the reality is the emotional cost is unavoidable and it's high. In our passage today, the Corinthians are declaring in verse 12 that they're free to do anything in Christ. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I'll be not mastered by anything. You see, it's even possible that some of the young men in this church in, in Corinth were going to see the prostitutes, and they were arguing something like this. You know, my body's not important. What I do with my body isn't important. I have freedom in Christ. All things are lawful for me, and I don't have to worry. Really, reality is we're going to, my spirit's been saved, and my body doesn't matter, and therefore, whatever I do with my body is just my own business. They're arguing that in the city of Corinth. And Paul absolutely refutes their idea. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians, both here and in chapter 15, is this. Your body is very, very important. In fact, what he's going to tell us is Jesus had not a spiritual resurrection, but a bodily resurrection. And therefore, contrary to the, the Greek philosophers or the poets, Jews and Christians both believe the body is so very important. That's why we're so careful with our barrier, burial and how we treat bodies. And the way what we do with our bodies is awfully, awfully important. What you do with your body is important because your body will be resurrected just like the body of Jesus. You cannot say, my body doesn't matter, only my soul matters or my spirit matters. Paul argues there's a bodily resurrection and you will be redeemed, including your body. God is going to raise us from the dead just like he raised the Christ. Well, look down at verse 13. They're saying food's for the stomach and stomach's for the food. So what they're arguing is God's going to do away with my stomach one day. God's going to do away with food one day. And so it, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. Look what he says, verse 13. Yet the body is not for immorality. The body is for the Lord, for the Lord the Lord is for the body. It really does matter what we do with our bodies, Paul says. The body is not for immorality, but rather our bodies are to be dedicated to the Lord, just like our spirits. Look at verse 14. God has raised Jesus, raised the Lord. He'll also raise us up through that power. We will experience a bodily resurrection. Do you know, not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You're joined to Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Shall it never be? Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is of one body with her? For he says, the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. There's a, a repetition of a Greek word here. We join ourselves to Christ, he says, in the same way we might join ourselves to a prostitute. And what he's arguing is this, the sexual act has a mystical spiritual entity to it. He says, can you take your body which has been joined to Christ and join it to a prostitute? May it never be, he says. Because in that sexual act, there is a mystical spiritual union that joins her God with your God, and your God is a God of holiness. It shall not be, he's saying here. There's a mysterious relationship there. Your bodies really do matter. He says in verse 19, don't you know what he usually says about the whole church, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 20, you have been bought with a price. 
Glorify God. Look at the end of verse 20. Glorify God in your body. He's paid for your body with the crucifixion of his body, and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. It's so extremely costly when we have sexual relationships with someone to whom we're not married. You're joining yourself in this mysterious, intimate, spiritual, mystical way with someone in a way that should, you should only be joined to your spouse. Your body belongs to God, and you're giving that which is holy to that which is unholy. And it has lasting repercussions. No amount of protection, no amount of birth control can save you from the psychological and emotional damage that swimming outside of God's boundaries causes. I'll read you an excerpt from a letter. A young man, he was, he was a virgin, saving himself from marriage, 23-year-old guy. These are his writings. I'm a virgin, he said. I met this woman six months ago when we recently started dating. I recently found out that she wanted to remain a virgin and, until she got married, but the reality is she was honest. She slept with a guy for about a half dozen times and she said she felt terrible about it. She promised God that she would never make that mistake again. And she believes that God has forgiven her. And he adds, I can't explain the hurt I felt when I asked her and found out that she hadn't saved herself for marriage. I want to give her 100% credit for being honest, he writes. She's always been that way. I almost broke up with her right then and right there. But there's something inside of me that tells me I need and I should forgive her. But the pain is so great. But the pain is so great. Here's the fourth thing we learn about human sexuality. That is, disciples live with discipline. Sexual purity is not really an option. It's not a buffet here. And you pick the passages that you want to obey and the ones that you don't. For an obedient Christian, it is an absolute requirement. Scripture declares that we should avoid sexual immorality. It says right here, verse 18, flee immorality. The same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says the same thing. I cannot sugarcoat this for you. You cannot be rightly related to God and at the same time knowingly defiant of the boundaries of the fishbowl when it comes to human sexuality. You cannot be rightly related to God and at the same time knowingly defiant the boundaries of the fishbowl when it comes to sex. You can't openly rebel against God and expect Him to have unhindered and expect to have unhindered growth in your relationship to Him at the same time. God doesn't oppose sexual sin because He doesn't want you to have fun. He opposes it because He knows that outside the fishbowl there's nothing but suffering and pain. Here's the fifth thing. We learn there are, of course, physical consequences. There are, of course, sometimes physical consequences as well. STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, are not always blocked by the use of contraception. There's only one way. There's only one way to be absolutely certain you will not get a sexually transmitted disease, and that is not contraception, it's not a vaccination, it is total abstinence. Or a relationship with two spouses that are completely faithful to each other. That's the only way. I read a story about a lady who went, Miss Layton was her name. 
She got a notice from her 13-year-old school that they were having a sex education class, and the parents were invited to come, and they could sit through the material that their children were going to sit through, so they would be exposed to what their children would Fair enough, sounded like a good idea to me. And so Ms. Layton went to the sex ed class, and she got there early. She was thumbing through all the materials that were going to be taught to the students in this class, and she noticed that absence was pretty much a footnote, if anywhere, in the material. And so when the teacher and the nurse finally came in, they started the lesson. She raised her hand. She said, you know, absence is absolutely 100% effective. I I'm just shocked that you don't talk about it more in this material. I, I really have a hard time finding it at all. Could you explain to me why if something works 100% of the time, while you would not put it in your materials about sexual education? And, well, she said all the other parents laughed at her, and they said, you might as well be an ostrich and stick your head back in the sand. How old-fashioned are you? We all know that that has not, cannot, and will not work, they said to Ms. Layton. Then the nurse came over and patted her on the shoulder and said, you know, we just teach the facts, and you can teach morality in your home. We just teach the scientific facts. Well, it came time in the sexual education class for a little break. Ms. Layton was filled kind of ostracized by the other parents, and she stayed in her seat. The lady announced, we're going to have donuts. I want everybody to have a donut, if you would. And, and everybody put on a name tag and greet each other, and we'll get to back together for the second half of the class in just a little bit. Well, uh, Ms. Layton stayed in her seat, and the teacher came over and said, Ms. Layton, don't you want to get a donut? She said, no, no. Well, go put on a name tag because I'm certain that the other parents would like to get to know you. She said, I'm, I'm kind of thinking they don't want to get to know me. I'll just stay right where I am. So eventually, after the intermission, all the parents and adults were called back together in the classroom, in the 13-year-old classroom, to, and the, the, the teacher said, now, I gave everybody a name tag. Everybody take off your name tag. And one of you has a little flower drawn on the back of your name tag. Said so that is a sexually transmitted disease. And whoever has that name tag, you have an STD. Now, man raised his hand. Everybody kind of giggled. And she said, sir, who did you shake hands with? And he pointed to two other people. She said, okay, you two are now affected with an STD. And then who did you shake hands with? So as you could hear, the teacher finally said, see, it went around the whole room. And this is what we'll show your students tomorrow when they come, that sexually transmitted diseases, well, they, they spread that fast. He said, look now, we've all been affected. Ms. Layton raised her hand and said, nope, not all of us. <laughs> One of us abstained. 100% effective abstinence. Here's a sixth thing we learn in God's Word. We're all vulnerable to sexual immorality. Bill Perkins says, if you think you won't fall into sexual sin, then you must consider yourself more godly than David, more mighty than Samson, and wiser than Solomon. If you think it happened to you, you must consider yourself more godly than David, who was a man after God's own heart who fell to sexual sin, stronger than Samson, who literally died because of his sexual sin, or wiser than Solomon, who was tripped over sexual sin despite being the wisest man to ever live. Here's the seventh thing we see. God doesn't want you to have premarital sex. Neither does he want you to do what prepares your body for puberal to sex. How far can I go 
is not the right question. Not only does God not want you to have premarital sex, he doesn't want you to do the things that prepare your body for premarital sex. I have a fear of heights. I'm not, I have very few phobias, and this one is controllable. I fly on a plane fine. I can go up in the stratosphere rides and all that. I, I, I do well. I went to you know, the Arch of St. Louis, 630 feet above, nothing between you and the ground but a, a sheet of glass, and I can do all of that. It's, it's when there is no boundary, when there is no glass wall or a railing is when I don't start feeling very good. And so uh, when my children would ever go climbing, mountain climbing, you know, just hiking around, all the other families would sit on the edge of the mountain, you know, 100 feet below the bottom and dangle their feet and kind of lean back for a picture. You'll never see my kids in a picture like that. You won't. I'm scared. So <laughs> if the boundary's right here, say that's the edge of the mountain, I made my kids stop right here. If I was a killjoy, you stop right here. If you're right here, you're not going to fall off the mountain. If you're right here, nobody can push you or horseplay or be foolish. You can't lean back too far. And so my kids really never saw the valley below. All they saw was kind of the edge that led to the valley below. Because I always would say, stop right here. What's true of falling off the cliff is true about falling off in regard to human sexuality. You need to stop way before the boundary because when the boundary gets too close, some have, will, and can fall off the edge. Back off and be sure. There's the eighth thing. There's nothing you've done that God isn't willing to forgive. There's nothing you've done that God isn't willing to forgive. This is not a sermon of condemnation and judgment. There may be some consequences to your actions that we can't take away for you. But if you've already crossed the line, if you've already gone too far, let me urge you with the greatest wisdom I have to retreat back to the lines of safety, to ask God for forgiveness, and to reestablish yourself as a young man or a young woman of sexual purity. God loves you. And that same God who forgives us for our greed and our gluttony will forgive you for your sexual immorality. We worship a loving and forgiving God, a God of another chance. Well, that's the things we are to believe. Now, what are the things we are to do in regard to our, our human sexuality? First of all, especially for our children and our students, number one, commit yourself to abstinence until you're married. Commit yourself to abstinence until you're married. You say, that can't work. I'm here to tell you, it can work. Number two, only date believers. Now, that's not a sure proof thing, but at least someone will understand and respect the boundaries that you have drawn, or certainly you hope they will because they worship the same Lord that you do. Number three, realize you don't owe anybody anything sexually. You don't owe anybody anything sexually. The only thing you owe is spiritual purity to your spouse-to-be. The only thing that you owe anybody sexually is yourself to be pure for your spouse of the future. It doesn't matter how nice the evening is that the guy has shown you. If he expects a sexual relationship as a result of your date, he's perceiving you not as a bride-to-be but as a prostitute. You owe no one anything sexually. Number four, Never use a substance that will cause you to compromise your clear thinking process. 
<clears throat> never use a substance that will compromise the clarity of your thinking. <clears throat> if you're drunk, if you're using drugs, you will lose your ability to make good judgments. Number five, never do anything with someone you're dating that you don't want your future spouse to have done. Never do anything with someone you're dating that you don't want your future spouse to have done. If you don't want someone to touch your future wife there, then you don't touch the girl you are dating there. Treat every girl as if she's someone's wife-to-be, someone's daughter, someone's sister, a human being made in the image of God. Male and female created he them in his image. Number six, be realistic about your future of someone. I think about one person a thousand ever marries their high school sweetheart. You think love's forever. You think this girl's a girl or this guy is a guy. And the reality is nothing is guaranteed until the pastor says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. In fact, I found a writing in the Wall Street Journal, February the 13th, that says, is it love or mental illness? And they're very closely associated, according to the Science of Wall Street Journal. What the writer of the article says is this. Chemically, something happens to your brain when you think you're in love. You lose your ability to make good judgments. It's kind of like picking out your socks in the dark. It's not a good time to do it. You have to set your boundaries before you ever have that feeling of love. Because mental illness and love have a lot of things in common. Helen Fisher, an anthropologist at New Jersey's Rutgers University, says the brain system evolved in romantic love is powerful. Everything that happens is going on in the brain, and everything that happens in romantic love has a chemical basis. Be careful. When your boyfriend says, if you love me, you would, you reply, if you love me, you wouldn't ask. When he says, if you love me, you would, you reply, if you love me, you wouldn't ask. God does love you. And God has placed boundaries around our human sexuality just like he placed boundaries around Adam and Eve and the trees in the garden. God loves you and he doesn't want you to suffer the pain of a fish out of water. Rather, he wants you to follow his will and his way for all of your life, including your sexuality. Here in Corinth, they had an idea my spirit's saved, my soul is saved, what I do with my body doesn't matter. They were going to visit the prostitutes saying, now that we have Christ, we are free. And Paul says, wait a minute, your body's going to be resurrected. Christ had a bodily death and a bodily resurrection. Your body is awfully important. Your body is part of God's redemption. Those who cross the line, God loves you. He died for you. He will forgive you. We will love you. We will forgive you. And we will move forward. But I bring you the word of caution. Because I want you to avoid the pain. 
And because I'm only preaching through 1 Corinthians, and this is exactly what it says, flee immorality for every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And you are not your own. You have been bought with a prize. The fishbowl sometimes seems awfully constraining, but it's the only safe place to thrive. And if you obey the boundaries, it will lead to an ocean of joy. Let us pray. Oh God, thank you for being so clear in your word about even the hard topics. And thank you for a church that wants the whole word preached when it's comfortable, when it's uncomfortable, when it condemns, when it elevates, when it challenges, and this morning when it forgives. Remind us all, O oh Lord, that what we do with our bodies, not just human sexuality, but in every way, really does matter. Because our bodies are part the redemption of the creation by the Creator. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.